When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! And welcome to the Bureaucrats Gone Wild edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. It's been a busy week. The President of the United States has been jetting all over the world, including to Saudi Arabia. We're going to talk about what exactly is going on there. We're going to talk about Saudi Arabia, the oil price, and what that has to do with venture capitalists and private equity types in the United States. It's all connected. We are going to talk also about the World Bank and specifically its chief economist, Paul Roma, and his war against what is known as bank speak. I'm going to want to listen to some of this bank speak. It's kind of awesome stuff. So that's all to come. I am Felix Salmon of Fusion. We are joined as ever by Anna Shemansky and Jordan Weissman. Hello, people. Hello. And I think that first we should talk about Brazil. I think so. I think we should. So why are we talking about Brazil? We are talking about Brazil because over the past few weeks, Another president with very low approval ratings uh, facing calls for resignation and possible possible impeachment as a result of corruption allegations has been in the news. And this is, in fact, Michel Temer, the current president of Brazil, who's been implicated in an ongoing corruption scandal uh, after an audio tape was released appearing to prove that he had sanctioned a number of bribe payments. So, now, I mean, he hasn't been president very long. He has not because he took over after Dilma Rousseff was impeached last year. Now, it's important to remember that Rousseff was actually not impeached because of the corruption scandal. She was impeached for what we like to call in EM creative accounting. <laughs> but the fact is, she was corrupt. She was. And her predecessor, Lula, Lula, who we all know and love, was also corrupt. Yes. It seems to be the case that it takes, what, 10 minutes after assuming the presidency to just start, like, 
becoming unbelievably corrupt, both accepting and paying enormous amounts well, I, of bribes. I think people are also corrupt in Brazil before they assume the presidency yes. as well. I, you don't have to wait, Felix. No. So, so Brazil is in turmoil. In 140 characters or less, Anna, what exactly is the corruption scandal in Brazil? So there are a number of scandals, but the central one is the Lava Jato corruption scandal, which involves kickbacks paid to the state-owned oil company Petrobras that implicated, at this point, essentially every political party and many of the biggest industries in Brazil. The bribes that were paid at this point were looking at over 6.4 billion reais. And what's that in dollars? Uh, right now, I think it's what we were like, like 3.27. So it, it's, a, it's a little over $2 billion. So what basically happened was Petrobras, the um, state oil company, would hire these construction contractors at inflated rates and have these kind of pretend competitions. And then the contractors would kick back money to some right. of the executives at the oil company, who then in turn would go and pay bribes to politicians who were influential in deciding essentially how the oil company was managed because it's mostly state owned. Yes. And again, a lot of this money would just be funneled, especially to the Workers' Party, which is the party of Dilma Rousseff and Lula Silva. And, and in terms of income inequality, we can also add that um, Lula apparently got $50 million of bribes, while Dilma only got $30 million of bribes. So women just don't exactly. get as much, paid as much as men. <laughs> All right. Um, Anna, as the emerging markets um, sort of finance type, you can tell us what's happened to stock prices in Brazil. So we did see a bit of a move downwards in the Bovespa, the Brazilian equity market, as well as the uh, value of the RIAI, the Brazilian currency. Now, there's been some recovery. And if you look at overall trends, the RIAI is still fairly strong. The market is still somewhat strong. But this has been one of the first real instances of market jitters in an EM economy. And there was one day where the market fell like over 10% in yes. one day. But if you look at an overall trend, it's still relatively high compared to where it was, say, before Rousseff was impeached. So what we have is, as you say, a case of political turmoil turning into market turmoil. But more to the point, we have a case of a country which just seems to be impossible to govern without just astonishing levels of corruption. And I don't think this is specific to Brazil. This is this is what happens in pretty much every EM economy. If you look at like world corruption lists, Brazil isn't even in the top 10. I don't even think they're in the top 20. Now, you see, I disagree about this. I think and, and I disagree in part based on this rather excellent um, Business Week piece about like the whole history of corruption in Brazil and how it all dates back to the emperor in the late 19th century who was just kind of installed this portuguese guy gets installed and there's this court and um and that feeling of like having an emperor in a court never really went away and it's certainly true even absent illegal corruption that some enormous amount of um, sort of upper middle class civil society in Brazil is made up of politicians paying themselves enormous salaries, giving themselves enormous pensions, and not really producing anything. And right, but yeah. name an EM country for me where that is not the case. Uh, well, how about Chile next door? Well, and actually Chile has recently been reforming. So they're a potentially an example of where when you start to crack down on corruption, you start to see some benefits. So 
this all kind of gets to the big question I have. And I, I should say at the outset, like start here that I have not been following Brazil's story closely for months and months and months. Some people have been like addicted to this soap opera. But, you know, I've started reading about it and it kind of in a weird way, brought me back to um, some of my college courses in political science. And Felix is giving me kind of a look right here, but I promise this is going somewhere. So <laughs> there's like, I had this professor, Jeffrey Winters, and he specialized in kind of emerging economies, politics, especially Southeast Asia. And he had this theory that said that corruption was essentially not deadly for an economy, that it could be managed as long as it was predictable, Right. As long as it could, you could have this sort of like you, you could have this thing where bureaucrats are paying themselves huge salaries and skimming some money from projects like oil companies, whatnot, as long as everyone kind of understood how the system worked. And there was someone kind of, you know, his term was taming the oligarchs, taming all these people so doing it. I, it I, was I, OK. Yeah. But and so to me, it seems like the markets have all sort of internalized that idea that you can do business in these places as long as the corruption is predictable. But now you've got Brazil where markets are freaking out and everything seems to be falling apart despite years of absolutely predictable corruption. Okay, so, so and I think uh, so there are two reactions to that I would make. Number one is I think that your professor was spending too much time looking at Indonesia. Okay. And Indonesia is, has always been the poster child for, look, you can have enormous growth and corruption in the Suharto era. Yeah. And it was true. And I think that it's a little bit dangerous to extrapolate from Suharto to the rest of the world, and especially to Brazil. Second, the Brazil was not nearly as openly corrupt as Suharto was. Suharto, everyone knew, was corrupt. He, you know, uh, he had like you know just billions of dollars, and it was open. And he was the you know he he ran the. Um, country with an iron fist and there was nothing anyone could do about it. Um, what you have in Brazil with the secret payments from companies like Odebrecht and Petrobras to the government was actually surprising to a lot of Brazilian society when these payments came out. And, the extent and of it was markets. surprising. And then, the, and then finally, I would just say that the markets sort of freaking out about this is not really them freaking out about the corruption. It's them freaking out about the political implications, which is that because every single polit politician in Brazil is presumptively tainted by this, and because Brazil is clearly fed up with it and wants to like kick all of the bums out, there is a real risk that there's not going to be anyone left to well, run the country. The reason the markets are freaking out is because they think that pension reform isn't going to go through. Do you mind unpacking that a little? Yeah. So essentially, when Tamir came in, one of the reasons that so much money started to flow back into Brazil was because there was the expectation that he was going to push through pension reform, labor market reform, and tax reform that was going to liberalize the economy, make it less rigid. And also they have a very unsustainable pension system. And so he was going to help reduce the fiscal deficit because they have a very, it's like 10% fiscal deficit. So he was going to help reduce that and make it more business friendly and more apt to have long-term growth. So now the fear, and again, I would argue that part of the reason that we haven't seen quite the sell-off you really would anticipate because people still think like, well, maybe the next guy who comes in can push this through. But the real concern is about structural reform more than anything else. Because I, I really I found this fascinating when the Brazilian crisis was going on, was that people started investors started to price in pension reform 
almost before Rousseff was even impeached. Just when it became clear that she was probably going to be impeached, you started to see money flowing back into these markets. And partly because you had had some underpricing of decent assets and a number of other much more complicated reasons. But I think it again goes back to markets wanting to believe these positive stories. And and markets also just missing the big picture, right? Like they, they can look at the economics and they love looking at the economics. But what they're missing is this big idea that the country will put up with a certain amount of corruption until it won't. Yeah. And, also, and, that, and that when that happens, the entire political, so the, the entire civil society can just fall apart. So this is what I kind of wanted to ask you, Anna, which is, you know, as someone who actually has been on the investor side dealing with emerging market economies, how do you price in corruption? How do you think about corruption when you're looking at an economy as a place to park your money or whatnot. Yeah. And this is really important because in EM, you, you kind of talk about counterparty risk. Now, this is a really big deal if you're talking about private investments, because as a, an American investor, you have to be very clear that the people you're investing with are not involved in corruption. I mean, that's actually really important. And I think this is, goes back to a larger issue in terms of why when a society is very corrupt, it can get to a certain level of growth, but it can't get past that. Because if you have just endemic corruption it stops a number of foreign investors from the U.S. and Europe from really getting involved because they they can't get involved with systems that are quite that corrupt. Although, you know, I mean, we remember, I remember the Korea crisis of 1997, 98, um, where a whole bunch of very corrupt tribals started sort of falling apart because the currency was in trouble. But the fact is that in the decades leading up to the late 90s, Korea did very well despite and had high levels of economic growth, despite also having quite a lot of corruption. No? Right. But you also have to look into what's fueling that. And I so with Brazil in particular, I also think it's easier to have corruption when you have a commodity boom and you have tons of money flowing in. It sounds a lot like um, sort of the way any boom will paper over, you know, bad business practices. And like in the US, the house, when everyone was making money off the housing bubble, people were happy to throw their money at you know, subprime mortgages and whatnot. And then when the tide came out, you know, you saw who was wearing a swimsuit or whatnot. Yeah, right. I think it's different than that. I think commodity booms are different. Okay. And I think that you can actually draw a distinction between corruption in large commodity exporters, like, say, Nigeria or Brazil, and corruption in countries which are less based on commodity exports like say Indonesia or Korea and the where you where you have the leaders just simply basically extracting rents from oil exporters um, that is going to leave a country without a lot of underlying economic vitality. And I think that that's actually really important if you want to talk about long-term growth and why corruption is such a big problem is because what corruption does is it really solidifies income inequality in a lot of these nations. We see that sp especially in Brazil, there's been some reduction in income inequality, but it still is a very inequitable society. And the problem is that when this happens, the elites which often are connected with the government, have no incentive to modernize the economy, liberalize the economy, because they're essentially just extracting rents, making lots of money. And so then what happens is you get, not surprisingly, lots of discontent among the population because they have no opportunity. So then what often happens? Well, they elect populist leaders. But then the populist leaders are often the worst in terms of, frankly, corruption. And, and so it just creates this cycle that you can't get out of. And it really 
hurts a lot of developing economies and stops them from ever really getting out of that middle income trap. They they essentially constantly hit a ceiling in terms of what they can achieve because of this endemic corruption. Again, we don't just see it in Brazil. We don't just see it in Latin America. We see it in a lot of the former Soviet. Well, I mean, this is this is the perfect segue. I have to kind of like do this at this point that we are now going to talk about Saudi Arabia, right? I mean, in Saudi Arabia, it is so entrenched that the ruling elite just extract all of the rents from the commodity exports that you don't even call it corruption. It's yeah. just it's just like they own it. Yeah. Um, but let's let's do that. Let's let's talk about what on earth is going into on in Saudi Arabia because it's is in a lot of economic pain right now. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and one percent on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co/card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So, Jordan, like, can you draw the line here t- to Saudi Arabia? What what kind of plight is Saudi Arabia in right now economically? They're not making enough money. <laughs> that's a, that's a, and that's oil, because, because of oil prices. Oil prices are too low. Yeah, oil and, prices are and too low. And they have a massive, because of exactly what Anna was yeah. talking well, about, so that they saying, need to spend a lot of yeah. money to keep the people happy. Yeah, this is, this is I think, slightly different than because it's, like you said, it's more formalized. So Saudi Arabia needs oil prices fairly high just to fund its state budget and, you know, pay for its lifestyle. Um, that's just how its economy works. It is a, you know, it's a petrostate. But, um, but to be clear, the thing they need to pay for is precisely what Anna was talking about. There's a bunch of like non-royal family people well, in Saudi is, Arabia who are like very extremist and um want and angry and want to blow up the world and the way you kind of keep them under control is by throwing money at them that is part of yes that is part of the the scheme that is and, part of that is part of the hustle in Saudi Arabia yeah this is what we see in frankly a lot of petro states where you have reduced freedoms for most of the people lack of economic opportunity but they pay no taxes their energy essentially costs nothing. And this is essentially the bargain that the population has with the leadership. And, you know, you know, since the 1970s, this hustle worked pretty well for Saudi Arabia because it was... For the ruling party. <laughs> for the ruling party, yeah, right. But because it was essentially what we call a swing, you know, the swing producer. The royal family, I guess. Yeah, you know, the idea was that Saudi Arabia had the power to essentially draw up its oil production or draw it down in order to sort of manage prices the way it wanted. And sometimes during some periods, this worked better than others. But it could sort of dictate, with the help of OPEC, the, you know, the the status of the global oil market. It could basically decide what prices were going to be. Um, And that sort of seems to be falling apart and has been falling apart for a long time, uh, for several years now. And we got another kind of bit of news this week that showed how that whole framework was deteriorating. So what is this piece of news? what's, What's the news hook here? Well, so the news hook is that OPEC has decided to keep production cuts 
that it agreed to in November for another for another nine months, I believe, for another several months. Um, and so you might recall the way oil prices basically collapsed a few years ago, right? Just like November 2014. Yeah, it was basically. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it was there. I can tell you those few weeks after were. Oh, my God. The, I just remember in like watching the Russian market because it's yeah. so aligned with oil prices. It was. The, yeah. The ruble just like it was it seemed like it was going to be worthless. Yes. I mean, it was it was it was a heady time. Right. Um, and so oil prices fell by more than half. Um, and Saudi Arabia was sitting and it had this kind of question hanging. What was it going to do? Was it going to cut back production on its own in order to try and stabilize the market? Or was it just going to keep the pumps going? And it decided to just keep pumping, keep drilling. And and this was considered to be a kind of tactical move to drive all of the frackers in America out of and, business. And, and also essentially to solidify market share. And the idea was they would really strengthen their relationship with their core consumers. They, they're not, I mean, the Saudis aren't stupid. They understood that at some point prices come back up, then the frackers, these new kind of shale drillers are going to come back online. But the idea was they would have already really kind of solidified these consumer relationships. So so the way I think about this is that Saudi Arabia basically got into a pissing contest with the frackers saying that, OK, we're, we can pump oil till like, you know, like there's no tomorrow and we can do that with low oil prices because our cost of oil is very low. Yeah. And you can't. You're going to lose money on every barrel if prices are this low. And so you're going to have to shut down shop and then it's all going to be it's going to be our game again. And the frackers that did actually happen in, in in the first instance that a bunch of places shut down, but what has happened which is absolutely fascinating to me is that the private equity types who had pumped a lot of money into these U.S. oil companies and lost all of that money responded by putting even more money Doubling in. down. They and, doubled down. And now there's a real war. Yeah. And so, and it's because they recognize something. And I, I want to take a little victory lap here, Felix, because several years ago, you might not remember this, but I do. Uh, I, I suggested this might happen, that essentially that U.S. frackers would now become the new swing producer. They would be in that position that they could adjust their production up and down to be kind of moderate global oil prices. And you told me, no, that's not going to happen. That's ridiculous. And instead, that's essentially the bet that the private equity guys have made. They realized that, OK, there was this bust. But now a lot of these frackers have gotten tons more efficient. It costs they've gotten their their cost to get a barrel of oil out of the ground has like fallen by a third to a half in some cases. And so they've gotten better at it. They're able to make money at lower prices and they can kind of inch up and make money, uh, they can kind of inch up and move with the market. And so they are now putting money into these companies and they're sustaining them through this down cycle. They're put, the private equity guys are saying, okay, you don't have to make money right now because long term, we know you're going to be a good bet. We're not going to deal with these crazy booms and busts because you can kind of move with the market. And I, I, I think it's important to remember a few things. Like one, as a number of these companies that went through bankruptcy, then were coming out of bankruptcy. Some of these restructurings involved like debt for equity swaps. So you now are probably going to have private equity firms more involved in the kind of day-to-day -day operations of how these essentially kind of like wildcat operations are, are working. And there's a question of moving forward what that is going to mean about how much they can spend 
on investment. Well, yeah, I mean, so, so, so right now it looks like they're investing a lot. All of these companies have negative free cash flow. They're all losing money and they are still perfectly happy to fund that. But essentially what ended up happening was you did have a bit of a culling where right now you have the leanest, strongest companies are the ones that have been able to either survive or come out of bankruptcy. So the idea is these are potentially much more profitable companies now. They don't have as much debt. Their interest payments are less. They're, the break-even price has declined now. That's a little more complicated than it looks on paper because part of the reason it's declined has been because of oil prices being really low. And so it's, it's, a, it's a bit more complicated than that. And I can also get into some other issues. But the reality is, it does appear that these companies are more apt to be profitable more quickly. So this isn't a stupid play by private equity. Yeah. So, I'm granted I used to work in private equity, so... So, so the question I have yeah. is, explain to me, you know, if I lent a bunch of money to an oil fracker and then woke up one morning after a debt for equity swap owning the company, I'm like, okay, now I own an oil fracker. Um, I have two choices. I can keep on pumping money and pumping oil, you know, and or I can just let it sit there for a while and not lose money and not pump oil and wait however many years it takes to wait for the oil price to come back up and then start making minting money, no? No, I mean, I do think that expectations of really, really ramping up production, I don't quite buy because I think that would involve more CapEx spending than they're willing to do at this point. But I don't think they're just going to sit there and wait because at this point, because break-even prices have declined, they can still make money at this price, especially if we start to keep oil prices above 50, near 50, and especially, especially if we got towards 60. Yeah, and so we should say what a break-even price is, just for people. Who, so yeah, yeah it, so it's it's just basically how what the price of oil has to be for you to make money on it, and there, it's just a term of art. But that's what we're talking about there, and that is what's happened. They've gotten technologically more advanced. Well, and it's not just tech. Part. part of it's technologically advanced. Part of it's also how they calculate it, because there's this thing called high grading where you write off your most inefficient wells and you calculate only based on your most efficient wells. So some of that has been going on as well. And, well, also, having said that, and also they have less so debt. So. We, we, right. we, should, we should probably come back to how this is, because I realize we yeah. lost our news hook here a little bit. How the, what this is yeah, so what the, does this have to do with Donald Trump in Saudi Arabia? So what, what does this mean, right? So essentially you had all these private equity guys jump into the market and now they uh, effectively own a lot what used to be these sort of crazy independent operations. And they've learned how to, they've sort of... They've, made the they've gotten the industry to function a little bit more stably in the United States and these frackers aren't disappearing they're not going away like Saudi Arabia thought so back in November Saudi Arabia got together with Russia essentially and they said we can't kill off the frackers it's not working so instead we need to reduce our own production in order to drain off the kind of oversupply that's in the world market. If we ever want to get prices back up for ourselves, we have to take this hit right now. And this was something Russia just doesn't typically do. And Saudi Arabia had to kind of, you know, it was this grand accord. They got them to agree. And so OPEC and Russia said, OK, we're going to cut production and we'll come back and talk about this in May once we've drained off all, all these supplies. Except what happened? The frackers amped up their own production. And so it's taking longer to do that. And so what we're seeing is how quickly the U.S. market can respond and how it's left OPEC sort of not powerless, 
but it just doesn't have the ability to kind of tweak things the way it used to. Yeah, OPEC, it wasn't that OPEC thought that the frackers were going to go out of business and never come back. They thought that they would be able to kind of tamp that down again while they focused on market share. They thought that the frackers wouldn't have as easy time getting access to affordable capital, which ended up not being the case. And now they're in a position where there's a bit of a question of why they've changed their strategy as quickly as they have. And there are a number of theories. They, I mean, they did actually change from uh, Naimi, who'd been in there forever in terms of over, overseeing oil policy, then a new person came in about whether now when they're talking about IPOing Aramco, so much of that valuation is based on oil prices. Okay, so now there's a whole bunch to unpack there. Um, but there are three things we just need to sort of like keep in mind here. Number one, like act one, Saudi Arabia increases production in response to the fracking threat because it thinks it's going to drive the frackers out of business. That fails. Act two, Saudi Arabia switches tactics and decreases production in reaction to the fracking threat because they reckon that's the only way they're ever going to be able to raise prices. Um, and then now what you're talking about is Act 3, which is Saudi Arabia has a new plan, which may or may not ever happen, which is maybe we shouldn't be so reliant on oil in the first place. And what we should do is sell our state oil company, Aramco, 5%. on the public markets and try and diversify our economy a little bit so we're not just a petro state. And what they want to do is list Saudi list Aramco on the international stock markets at a valuation of $2 trillion, which no one really believes they're going to be able to get. And so given that they're not going to be able to get that $2 trillion valuation, it's an interesting open question whether they are going to do it or not. Right. Right. Because again, going back to this idea that the Saudi, the way that their government structure works depends on the ability to subsidize so much of their population. So they are facing a question of in a just new oil market. We're not just talking about trying to get through a few years of low prices and then things come back. We're talking about a structurally different energy market because yeah. we haven't even brought in a discussion of renewables and what that could look like in 10 to 20 years. Or, or even your renewables in the Middle East, where now solar energy in the Middle East is cheaper than oil. Yeah. Right. And I think... The Saudis are not stupid. <laughs> this is what they do. They understand that the market has dramatically changed. They think that there's still enough global demand to absorb the shale producers' production. And I think there's some argument that they're kind of waiting for global demand to increase. And I think that's actually one interesting area where the Saudis and the private equity guys are essentially in the same boat. Yeah. That they both think what ultimately is going to bring down supply is actually this these growth projections that still haven't May, quite yeah, come one to day. pass. Everybody's banking everything on. And then, the, but then there's also just the the story we've been hearing for well over a decade now, which is the peak oil story, which is basically there's a finite amount of oil in the world, and as well, that amount of oil goes, that down, was really yeah. before a lot of the technology yeah. around. Peak oil kind of died with Shale fracking. Offshore. Now it's Having now it's oil getting stranded. That's more the story. Right. And BP, yeah. though, still says they think that kind of global demand is going to peak around, I think, 2035. And because because of a lot of reasons, but partly because we're going to see in the developing world 
a lot of laws related to, frankly, climate change and also just changing lifestyle patterns that people aren't going to be using the same amount of fossil fuels. They still think you're going to see demand increasing in the developing world. But there's a question. I mean, if you look at things we're getting out of India and China and how they're talking about, you know, moving forward, considering I'm not saying they're switching overnight, but partly because they also have issues with pollution, which then is separate from climate change. But it creates a public support for new forms of energy, which, again, just brings into question these ideas about reducing supply by this eternal increase in demand. Yeah, I mean, I I think the kind of big picture issue here is that you have these commodity producing countries, these oil producing countries with various levels of corruption that have all sort of based their economies on selling oil, petrostates, various degrees. And first you've had the frackers come and mess up their model. And now they're 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 politically and economically struggling and they're not quite sure what to do. And then you have by the time they have figured out how to deal with fracking with this kind of technological revolution, they're going to have to figure out how to deal with the decline of oil in general. And so after one storm hits, there's another coming for them. And what happens to them after that? Right. And and I mean, in a you know slightly side note, but I mean, again, ultimately, if a lot of petro states would be forced to diversify their economy, I think that would actually be really good for the population and also as a society if people are using less oil and gas. That's also, I think, ultimately good for society. But we're talking about a part of the world that economy has been so dependent on these prices for so long. And that's not a simple shift. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Let's move on to something more fun here. The chief economist of the World Bank is one of the most high prestige jobs in the entire economic, possibly the most high prestige job in the entire economic profession. Everyone who's anyone who's held it from Stan Fisher to Joe Stiglitz to Larry Summers. Um, and it is now held by Paul Romer, who is this much beloved economist, um, who has recently, in his sort of middle age, started getting a little bit cantankerous. Very cantankerous. Delightfully cantankerous. I don't know if he would like the word cantankerous. I even, think he, there are a lot of syllables. I think he, he would like that word. Even, even by um, economist standards. Especially yeah. with other economists. This is the thing that he has really started taking aim at the entire practice of economics. He, he really has. And I, we, we should say, just for context, Paul Romer, like, he is already an extremely 
famous, like beloved economist. But, but before he got this job at the World Bank, I mean, it's why he, he got the job? He, at the World Bank. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, and, the, well, the job didn't way. elevate him. He almost elevated the job yeah, in this the, case. Everyone said, "Oh my God, the World Bank managed got to hire Paul, Paul Romer!" Romer. Like, and wow. The re- and he's he's regularly talked about as a Nobel Prize, you know, contender. Um, and essentially, anytime you hear the words human capital, that's coming back to his theory of growth. I mean, he's responsible for something called largely responsible for something called endogenous growth theory. I won't get too deep into it. But whenever you hear about how important education and technology are to growing an economy, he sort of laid a lot of the theoretical groundwork for for that. And so anyway, he's now just turned into he's not a troll, but he's turned into he's he's turned into like a scourge upon the profession. Let's put and maybe a good scourge. And he's written a a few papers, and I think we've talked about this in previous episodes, like taking aim at the entire practice of economics. And he's practicing what he preaches, or at least he seemed to be doing that. When he arrived in the World Bank, he looked at, and the World Bank is basically a couple of thousand PhD economists all sitting around in a whopping great building in Washington, D.C., doing abstruse economics and trying to work out how it uh, and in know, theory, this is related to financing yeah, in, in infrastructure in the developing world. Well, yes. no, I mean, in theory, it's, so this is so this is exactly what Paul's problem was. And yeah, this goes back to this wonderful paper, which was published by Stanford's Literary Lab a couple of years ago. And I would I would highly recommend reading this paper because it's just awesome. And I've pulled out some choice tidbits for later. The um, the, the the title of the paper is Bank Speak. The language of World Bank reports 1946 to 2012. And basically what they did was they just looked at World Bank reports over decades and looked at how the language changed. And what, and Paul Romer has really clearly internalized this paper and taken it very, very seriously and even literally. Um, he, that the, once upon a time, to your point, Anna, this is what the economists did was that they tried to look at the effect of infrastructure investments on national economies and that kind of thing. And then more recently, it's becoming more and more abstruse and abstract and less related to concrete things in the world and more related to random things like good governance or something like that. And so Paul, in becoming the World Bank chief economist, also wound up being the direct boss of like 600 of these World Bank economists. And he turned around to these 600 economists who he was in charge of and said, okay, enough of this abstract nothingness, which means nothing. I want you to get back to actually saying concrete things about realities on the ground. And I'm going to force you to start getting specific about things. And this did not go down well. No, they basically no. took his job away. Yes. <laughs> I mean, like, they, he's still technically the chief economist, but they took all of his management responsibilities away. And they claimed somewhat that it was because he told them they used and too much. Yeah. So if you read this paper, um, I, you know, I was I was kind of, you know, I was a little skeptical of Romer's uh, militant, uh, militant anti-conjunction <laughs> position. Yeah. Thank you for finishing that for me. But when you read this paper, you actually see it's sort of a serious issue because the World Bank's focus kind of goes from it, it, it transforms. At first, it's very much about fixing poverty, dealing with things like agriculture. And you see those words reflected in the language used in its reports. And then all of a sudden, by the end of it, it's all about this bureaucratic ease. And essentially, they become very concerned with programs and their own. Okay, so let me let me give a one. My favorite example yes. from the paper is where they look at the words surrounding 
the word poverty yes. in papers, and then they also look at the words surrounding the word the term poverty reduction, and the the words surrounding the term poverty are things like um, total cost, population, income, services, problems, resources, food, health, agriculture. You know, real things which we should study and. One would expect naively that if you're talking about poverty reduction, one would get a similar set of terms. One would be wrong because the actual terms surrounding poverty reduction are strategies, programs, policies, focus, key management, reports, goals, approach, projects, framework, priorities, and papers. Yes. So and that is what Roma was. It's this bizarre solipsism of the World Bank, where everything right. is and focused on their own kind of procedure and the things that people who've been through the Kennedy School of Government might care about, but not necessarily a farmer in, in Brazil. Or and whatever. I think it's important. It's not just a semantic issue because it relates to the mission of the bank itself. And as they're focusing on theory and writing these abstruse documents, you have the Chinese Infrastructure Bank actually getting involved much more in the developing world and what does that mean and the and the way and this brings us back to this question of and yes which is the there was a lot of people laughing on twitter about the fact that paul romo would look at the percentage of words that were the word and and he would cap it at four percent honestly that may have been too high like yeah so i have the, the one of the passages that was brought up in the paper that is you can this is why paul roma hates the word and is because there was this passage from the 1999 report i mean this is not new this goes back 20 years where they want to quote promote corporate governance and competition policies and reform and privatize state-owned enterprises and labor market social protection reform. There is greater emphasis on quality, responsiveness, and partnerships, on knowledge sharing and client orientation, and on poverty reduction. Do they just hate commas? <laughs> it's it's partly that they hate commas, but it's more that what they're doing is they're concatenating a whole bunch of diff- different things which don't belong together. As 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 the authors of the Stanford reports say, knowledge sharing has really nothing to do with client orientation, poverty reduction, nothing to do with either. But if you just throw them all together into a laundry list of things like governance, which are good things, you lose the specificity, but you get to sound like you're right. You oh, sound cool. You cool. can you yeah. can publish you can publish this. You say, "Oh, look how clever I am," but you're not actually creating any change in the world. You're not actually helping people. Have either of you ever had any experience having to write sentences like this? I'm curious because <laughs> I have. And I, I want to talk a little bit about like how it happens to something. So when I was reading this, and this is this is going to sound really mundane, but I had acid flashbacks to my days having to write like advertising copy for a law firm. And the, you, how is this related? And the reason is because you're essentially writing for you're essentially writing by committee to some extent, and you're trying to please all these different stakeholders who all have little pet things they want to insert, and you don't want to offend anybody. And so you have to put everything in the vaguest possible language, which often involves some really obnoxious use of the passive voice or whatnot. And by the end, you have something that you can hand to like six very well-paid, you know, economists or lawyers in my case, and no one will be offended because they see their little part of it is there. But it means jack shit and so right. like it seems like at some point you've just lost your, and it's it's a sign of having lost your mission that there's and no I, point to what you're so, doing I agree and is, I think yeah. this also speaks to the mission creep at the World Bank itself which has been a criticism of the mission of the World Bank for a 
number of years. Well, this is also the mission creep in the economic profession. Like, and this is where the Paul Roma criticism of economics generally overlaps with the Stanford linguistic criticism of economics as it's practiced at the bank, which is that economics has turned into itself and that it is increasingly finding it difficult to say helpful things about the real world. It has become much more macro. It, it is becoming much well, less I, likely much to say something about I disagree with that a little bit because I think what... So Paul Romer's criticism of economics is a criticism specifically of macro. His criticism is of basically this turn that happened in the 1970s and not necessarily even the turn it took them, but how it was interpreted by people who came afterwards. Um, and it's about the assumptions that the kind of crazy assumptions that goes into go into these models that tell you that monetary policy doesn't matter in the end. Like that's that's his what he's upset with with macro economics in general has actually become a lot more empirical over that same time. And so that's sort of the concept. Contrast, I think, and it's a big criticism of Romer is that some of his criticisms sometimes appear to be against a form of economics that isn't the type that is actually practiced by a lot of economists now, today. Yeah, but the fact is that the thing with the the common thread here is that he is in favor of grounded specificity and against unfalsifiable hand waving. Yes, that's true. And so. He comes in with this crusade. Yeah. He's like, no unfalsifiable hand waving. And he gets ousted. Like, the unfalsifiable hand wavers basically win this battle. It's, yeah, it again is where the bureaucrats have their day. And this is, and this is despite the fact that the, head of the World Bank, Jim Kim, is also famously trying to shake up and do a lot of like management changes and, and get the people out into the field and doing more real things. Um, and he seems to be safer in his job. It's weird that like Jim Kim seems to be safer in his job than Paul Romer. You know, it, this could also just be, you know, a matter of style, right? And not just grammatical style, but like, <laughs> you know, if you... Some, leadership yeah, style. Yeah, leadership style. Like he may have had the right idea and just pissed off enough people so quickly that he, it wasn't sustainable. I mean, I, I do think it's a little bit unfortunate that bureaucrats seem to have won at a point where the World Bank's um, relevance is suddenly coming into question, or not suddenly, is coming into question for a long time, but even more so now, like you were saying, with China sort of trying to take on this mantle. Um, But yeah, I mean, he may have had the right idea and been the wrong guy. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay. Um, Numbers round. So so 
Jordan Weissman not only came into the studio today with his laptop, as is his one, but also has a literal physical copy of The New Yorker. I'm an ink-stained wretch today because The New Yorker ink still, like, wipes off on your hands. Um, Yeah, so I guess it's time for my number then, right? Uh, My number is uh, 38,000. That's essentially how much sand one mile of American interstate highway requires to produce 38,000 tons of sand. Um, and why am I bringing this up? Are we up? reaching peak sand? <laughs> Basically, there's a New Yorker article about how like, we are using more sand than really is sustainable like worldwide. And it's partly because of the vast amounts of it that go into things like concrete, glass. Our world is built on sand and it's so metaphorically apt and we're running out of the sand and it's all going to crumble anyway. And that's and that's all I have to say. <laughs> it's- and actually that's that's fitting with my number because part of where what was using all of that sand has was has been the Chinese government in terms of building one me- day. <laughs> one day Anna's gonna have a number which is not, not Chinese. China. But that day is not today. I don't think I don't think you ever should. No, it is not you today. You do you Anna <laughs> So my number is 164%, and that's the corporate debt-to-GDP ratio in China. So this past week, Moody's downgraded China for the first time, I think, since 1989. So even though they're still far in investment-grade territory, this is significant in terms of Moody's pointing out that we should be paying attention okay, to Chinese debt. Okay, so let's debt. just let's just be clear about this number. If you add up all of the corporate debt in China... And all it, of the household and all of the quasi, then you actually get over 300... Not over, almost 300%. But, but if you add up all of the corporate debt in China, it comes to 164% of GDP. Yes. And that is so high, partly because all of the banks are state-owned, or many of the banks are state-owned, that that actually affects China's sovereign credit. Well, yes, of course, because a lot of these are contingent liabilities, because the idea is that if a state-owned enterprise can't pay its debt, the government is then going to pay the debt. And my number, just to finish this off, is 16%, or 0.16, I guess, um, Foursquare. You know that little game which you play on your phone where you check in places? It turns out... It's still there. It still exists, and they have 132 million users or something enormous, and they... Uh, on many phones and they can see how many people are traveling around the world and they know when you're traveling around the world and they can look at where you're traveling to and depending on whether you're going to amusement amusement parks or to convention centers they can make a pretty good guess as to whether you're a leisure traveler or a business traveler and so what they did was they looked at all of the non-american users of foursquare and tried to say well how much how many of those people are traveling to America for leisure, not for business? How many? Basically, this is a way of measuring international tourism to America. Okay. And what they found is that in March, the amount of international tourism to America is 16% lower than it was a year previously. Why might that be? <laughs> and <laughs> we, will, we will get the official numbers about, you know... Um, tourism entries into America um, in about six months. But this is the first very early indication that there's been a massive, massive effect on international tourism into America um, in 2017. And who knows why that could be? <laughs> I, yeah. Maybe for because of someone who's not currently in America. <laughs> 
Um, we shall not be named. Maybe he'll be detained at the border. Yes. <laughs> we can only pray. Uh, on which Trumpish note we shall bring this episode of Slate Money to an end. Do listen to all the other shows on Panoply at panoply.fm. Many thanks to Dan Schrader and to the other producer types around these parts, such as Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers and June Thomas. Write to us. Our email address is always slatemoney at slate.com. Leave us a review over at Apple Podcasts. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. And that's an additive like this and that. But that's sort of the opposite. Not this, but that. And then there's all.